0: Interoptic makes high-quality optical modules you can rely on. Plus, they are far cheaper than OEM optics. Save big money without compromising quality. Visit interoptic.com/packet-pushers and we thank Interoptic for being an excellent sponsor. interoptic.com/packet-pushers. The State of the Internet virtual event is being held July 16, 2020 by sponsor ThousandEyes, recently acquired by Cisco. The lineup of speakers is for real, including Jeff Huston from Apnic, Roger Barranco from Akamai, and David Belson of the Internet Society. Hooley's Gavin Belson could not make it, but you should still register at thousandeyes.com/state-of-the-internet-2020 with hyphens in between each word. One more time, thousandeyes.com/state-of-the-internet-2020 with hyphens in between each word. Welcome to Packet Pushers. Today's show is rather unique. What we're talking
1: about is wireless ISPs. Now, wireless ISPs are a form of networking that uses the same technologies that we all do for just about everything else, except maybe the wireless radio stuff is pretty specialized to do that sort of stuff. Anyway, Corey Steele got in contact with me a couple of days ago, and he said he's really interested in WISP design and how that works. And do I know somebody that I could recommend? And I went, do I? And I went, you bet I do. So I got on the phone to Kevin Myers and said, we need to get together and have a chat. And I'm going to let these two guys get in the room and start asking questions. Corey's going to come at it from the point of view of, this is what I don't want to know. These have got some ideas. I've got questions I want to ask. And Kevin's going to brain dump on him like like a dumpster falling out of the sky. Welcome to today's show. This is Packet Pushers. I'm Greg Farrow. Let's go. So welcome to our guest today, Kevin Myers. Why don't you tell the audience a little bit about yourself and why you can talk intelligently about WISP design?
2: Yeah, for sure. Hey, Greg. Uh, My name is Kevin Myers. I'm a senior network architect with IP Architects, and uh, we spend a lot of time designing and building uh, all kinds of ISPs, um, but but notably wireless ISPs. Uh, We spend uh, quite a bit of time and and have spent on working on their design, refining the design, understanding Mm. how they work um, globally for the last uh, about 10 years.
1: Right. So this is your core business is literally designing and deploying WISP networks for people globally. Yes. Right. And also joining us today is Corey Steele. Why don't you do the same thing?
3: Hey, I'm Corey Steele. Uh, I'm a senior consultant for STI Group. And uh, what I do is uh, I generally ask a lot of questions and try and help people understand so they can make the best possible decisions for their business at the network level.
1: Right. So you're out there convincing people to buy products and use products and you're a consultant in that sort of space. So you came to me, Corey, and said, Greg, I want to do a show about WISP design. I'm guessing you've got a WISP design going on out there somewhere, or you've got some ideas around it. Uh, I've definitely got some ideas around it and a lot of
3: questions, and uh, I'm looking forward to you know talking to Kevin about those things and getting somebody who is significantly more knowledgeable than myself <laughs> in this, uh, and I'm looking forward to it.
1: Right. And so what we've got here is Kevin Myers uh, going Corey's going to ask his questions and Kevin's basically going to answer them. And uh, we're going to see how that conversation evolves so that you can basically be a part of this um, learning experience that we wanted to do. And that's the purpose of today's show. So why don't we kick it off quickly, Kevin, with a, a quick summary of what is a WISP just for the audience. Let's just level set that as a starting point.
2: Yeah, sure. I think um, probably one of the first things to do is to break down some of the different kinds of WISPs that exist. I mean, if you look at the acronym, it's a Wireless Internet Service Provider. So that can mean a few different things. Um, What most people think of when they think of a WISP um, is typically a startup ISP or a smaller regional ISP somewhere in the world that is using primarily wireless for the last mile access. But oftentimes, they'll use wireless uh, to get transport back to some kind of an IP transit point to... To hook into the internet and deliver you know, internet and other services to a customer. That's probably the most common definition, but it gets it breaks down to a few different um, areas. We see WISP done in rural areas all over the world. Very very common to, for rural access for people that are not near fiber or copper services. Uh, we see them done in metro and urban areas um, when it's you know too expensive or not easy to get fiber in. We'll bring like fiber into a point and distribute it wirelessly. That's another kind of WISP. Uh, and multi dwelling units are another kind of WISP that we'll see. Um, for like a for-profit ISP, where you'll have a, a series of buildings or businesses where they may drop, you know, fiber or wireless backhaul in, and then distribute that um, wirelessly and wired in a in a certain area, and then you get into. Um, what people don't think of as often as a WISP, and that's uh, the energy sector. Great example. Mm, uh, mm. Large WISPs are, are built to distribute things for oil, gas, mining. Um, normally, not like high throughput. You'll have some internet access. Normally, it's it's almost more of a, of an IoT-type deployment where you've got thousands and sometimes even hundreds of thousands of things that you just want to manage and be able to touch. So... Um, and then you get into nonprofits and government. They, um, government nonprofits build WISPs for various reasons. I think I was telling Corey earlier about a research entity up in Alaska where they needed to do some, uh, um, basically needed to do some viewing of whales. They needed to watch whales on infrared cameras. And so there were a very small number of nodes on this network, but they needed it wirelessly delivered back to a, a data center. And so they had a very traditional WISP built for that. So there's a whole, a whole slew of different definitions of what a wireless you know, ISP can be.
1: Yeah, I just sort of imagine it's like normally we talk about DSLAMs or cable wireless, cable networks delivering into the house. A wireless ISP is often a rural exercise in my mind or somewhere where the idea of cable and a pair of copper in the ground fails for some reason. You know, it can be regulatory, it can be just distance, maybe the telcos don't want to work in a rural area. But if you don't have all the imposts of a telco, setting up a wireless network can avoid all of the costs of a fixed telco NISCO. like digging cable into the ground or putting it on poles is big bucks
2: it is absolutely and i think one of the other things that you mentioned that's important to point out is that a lot of the telcos and incumbent isps use wireless now to step outside of service areas that are otherwise not economically feasible to serve so you know it's not just startup isps that will build a wireless infrastructure and go deliver it that way and roll you see telcos and incumbents and even larger carriers are getting into the the wisp game and using it to extend their footprint that's a that's a pretty hot thing
3: so what about uh the everyday person the everyday engineer uh i know you're saying a lot of uh carriers and and government and oil it you know is there a place for this for the everyday person to try and help out and and spread the wisps
2: Absolutely. Um, I think one of, probably one of the most common types of WISPs that will come to us is somebody with a, with a business plan that wants to enable connectivity in an area where they, they live or they work that they don't otherwise have great connectivity. So a lot of times, you know, a WISP will be some kind of a commercial internet connection and one tower. Uh, and and they will build that as a, you know, kind of a startup operation that happens all the time. And, um, and not even to go too far down the rabbit hole, but oftentimes it's not even a tower, the way you think of a radio tower. It could be the top of a building or a water tower or a mountaintop. So there's a lot of different ways that people, the average person can go either self fund themselves or go get a little bit of funding and go start a WISP and get some bandwidth. It's, you know, luckily, Wisps trend towards commodity equipment that isn't as expensive as the traditional vendors we all work with in large carrier and enterprise and data centers, so it can be done, you know, very economically for the average person.
3: So, so how do I make sure the FCC uh, doesn't get mad at me?
2: Um, so yeah, that's a so that wow, that's going to go down a rabbit hole here. So the um, when you get into the world of spectrum licensing and all of that, that that is a. That is a vast topic. And luckily, there are some unlicensed bands that we work with a lot in the wireless space. So what you'll find that WISPs leverage a lot of is 5 gigahertz, the same spectrum that we use in Wi-Fi all over the all over the planet. Um, there is some custom equipment that uses that unlicensed spectrum that can be used for point-to-point links, uh, point-to-multipoint links. Um, there's other unlicensed frequencies, I think, uh, like uh, uh, 24 gigahertz and... Um, there's a big push right now to unlicense, I think, 6 gigahertz in the FCC. Um, and it's the same globally, too. The FCC is, is the U.S. regulatory agency. But as you go into Europe, Africa, Canada, all, you know, all around the world, there's you know, other entities are starting to try to coordinate this to use some of the same frequencies in the same way. So you'll see power requirements differ by country. You know, some of the things that you can do differ by country. But in general, you know, there's, a, there's a pretty good coordinated effort to use a lot of the same types of frequencies around the world.
3: Oh. And And do you think 5G has a place here uh, in in keeping uh, things afloat?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the thing about 5G is it's such a wide definition of what it can be. If you look at the frequency chart for 5G, last time I looked at it, there's like, I don't know, 20 or 30 different kinds of frequencies. So, you know, it's definitely a very wide-ranging standard, if you will, even though they're still kind of working on polishing that off. And so, uh, you know, CBRS is a great example in the US that the, everybody is pushing towards in the US, which is a kind of a rehash of the old WiMAX frequency space. It's a 3.5 gigahertz spectrum that that is designed to be like a light licensing, they call it PAL Priority Access Licensing. It's very, very easy generally to obtain. And then um, Google has actually gotten involved in it because they help control um, who has access to the licensing. The radios actually have to call into a service that Google built. Um, mm. So Google has been involved in CBRS because basically, to get Spectrum at auction... like I'm going to use the FCC as an example just because I, I probably know it better than some of the other countries here in the US. But getting Spectrum at auction is a pretty lengthy and complicated process. You, know, you have to go through a lot of things to actually get access to Spectrum, depending on what you're trying uh, to get. And so... The CBRS model, which stands for Citizens Broadband Radio Service, was designed to be kind of like the CB radios that were hot in the 70s and 80s, but for for data to say, you know, I want something that is fairly easy to use. It's not quite unlicensed. That was the original intent, um, but it got uh, to be a little bit more regulated in the model that just went in production um, very recently. January of 2020 is when it went on of trials into full production. So. So, so how
3: do I get into that?
2: Um, you know, honestly, if you, if you start a WISP, you can go through the process with the FCC once you have a business name and an entity name, you can go to the FCC and there's a website to start going through the process. And if you're in another country, there's similar bands to CBRS in other countries that you, know, you mm. can go to whoever is regulating frequencies in your country um, to go start applying for that, along with any other frequency you want to use that's licensed. Mm.
1: The philosophy there is that the CBRS spectrum isn't being heavily utilized enough, and there's more value to it if it's being given to people to use as CBRS. However... You can. You've got to be careful that you don't stop on each other. So there is a a side channels and signal strengths, and too many people using it. You do have to register it. It's a self uh, self healing system in a way. They're sort of letting the market sort it out. And if something, if somebody is whining that somebody's breaking on, you know, impinging on the others, there'll be a, a, a arbitration process, which the local spectrum body. But basically, they're throwing over the CBRS spectrums to to wireless companies to use as though it was open open spectrum. But it's not quite open. Is that right?
2: That's exactly it. It's a very light, it's a light touch licensing. Light touch, yeah. it, priority access licensing, PAL is what they call it in the US. And so you're exactly right, Greg. It, it's intended to be rapid to deploy, to not get mired down in a lengthy licensing process, but still have a, a little bit of control so that you don't, you're not stepping over all over each other.
1: Yeah, In theory, you should be able to go and check if anybody's using that spectrum in your area and then you would know that capacity is available.
2: Yeah, your radio actually checks for you. That's the whole point of the Google coordination is the radio will actually check and coordinate frequencies as part of a, of a, of a basically a
1: countrywide database. And if they aren't registered, you can go and complain.
2: Yeah, yeah. You can always complain. There's there's always a forum at the FCC for complaints. That's, that's for sure. So...
3: Do these radios all have to be able to scan for uh, this, or is there a central radio that checks the frequencies?
2: so i'd have to check on cbrs i'd actually have to go check on that because i should have drug, drug my rf engineers on my team on here because I, I my i'd a lot of time on the route switch side of wisps and spent a lot of time around the radios and i can't remember if cbrs actually has a separate radio that does the scanning or not i mean you would think so but that's that's something that um would probably go in and dig into the cbrs hmm. standard i mean one of the things hmm. that's interesting about cbrs is it's been a moving target it's changed like it just went prod two months ago right before you know um, you know everything changed in the world, and they have changed it a lot over the years. So CBRS is is kind of like 5G, and people classify it as 5G in the sense that in the last 18 months, it's been a moving target as far as what vendors were required to do and what they were supposed to do. Um, and that's changed a lot. So you know you'll find if if you're having a hard time finding everything laid out exactly in CBRS to to fully understand it, it's because it's been very very uh, it's been changed a lot over the last 18 months.
3: So from my perspective CBRS is probably uh, the biggest tool we we have here to especially with it going into production being able to use that to to deploy wireless cheaply is probably the the best bet. Uh, what are your thoughts? There, so
2: this is this is where we kind of get into what terrain and what area are you trying to serve? Because you get to start getting into frequencies and antenna types, which um, certainly isn't my primary area of expertise. But I, you know, I play an RF engineer on TV, and I spend enough time around it that I can give you some basic overview concepts. But what you'll see is most WISPs, when they start up, if you want to take a startup WISP that's going to be one or two people that's going to go serve an area, they're normally going to start in the unlicensed space. They're going to start with five gigahertz and they're gonna go to you know go get equipment from companies like Microtik or Cambium or Ubiquiti. and there's a, a whole bunch of them out there that service the Wisp market to get a fairly inexpensive point to multipoint radio to cover An area on a tower, you know, you're going to cover, you know, a sector of like, you know, thirty degrees or sixty degrees or ninety degrees to cover an area, and the 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 terrain that you cover, you know, kind of dictates the frequencies and the types of antennas that you use. So CBRS is is one type of way uh, to do that. Like I said, it's a rehash of the WiMAX space of old. It's a three point five gigahertz frequency. Um, It's very much like an LTE technology. In fact, a lot of the L what we called small cell LTE, which is basically LTE, not for mobility. So I know Corey, you've got some background, you know, in the LTE space where, you know, you've got mobility between towers. There's these large complex systems of orchestration to make sure that you can roam on towers and do all of that. There was a, there was an idea back a few years ago uh, with LTE that, LTE is designed for outdoor wireless. It does a really good job of covering an area and adapting to all of the challenges that you have in outdoor wireless. So they kind of simplified the system to say that if I don't need to roam and I'm not driving 70 miles an hour, um, can I just fix LTE on a spot and deliver broadband, deliver you know internet service? And so that became known as small cell LTE, which is now kind of morphed into CBRS. So we use that in areas where especially you'll have some near what we call near line of sight where you're Pretty much line of sight. You might have a few light obstructions. LTE does a pretty good job of like of getting through that in most cases. Um, you still need to have a pretty decent line of sight. But you can have a few things in the way. Whereas if you get into some of the unlicensed frequencies, like five gigahertz and some of the others, and people even still use 2.4 to be honest in some areas, I still people see people using two point four. Um, you know, it gets a bit harder because those frequencies and those builds were came from the Wi-Fi world. Like Wi-Fi was not designed for outdoor wireless, and even though we've done a really good job of building equipment that delivers it, that's what CBRS is really uh, intended to kind of cover. So, you know, at the end of the day, it's, you know, if you think about just like anything else in networking, you have all these tools that all cover a specific use case. And so when you get into the world of wireless, you're going to have a variety of antenna types, radio types, frequency types that you're going to use to serve the last mile to the customer off the tower, as well as the point-to-points that connect the towers. Um, And if you're, whether you're shooting over water, mountains... You know, forests, you know, all of that kind of plays into the frequencies and antennas that you pick. So CBRS is a, it's a huge part of that. It's a huge piece of that, but it's certainly not the only piece.
3: So so what about 2.4? You you mentioned that briefly is 2.4 yeah. gigahertz. Is, is it a thing? Is it going to be a thing? Is it, is it um, used?
1: It's definitely
2: people are people have trended away from it in a lot of areas, but this is where you have to start looking a bit internationally. So in the U.S., 2.4 is definitely people don't really like to use it unless you're in a very very rural area where there's almost no competition for space. But I do a lot of work in South America, I do a lot of work in in Africa and and um, other parts of Europe. And you know, if you're in the middle of Africa, you know, in the middle of nowhere, and you've got no civilization for two or three hundred miles, sometimes you will see 2.4 use because there's no contention for the spectrum. Um, um, it's distance wise, you know, you, it, the wave will propagate a little bit further and not be quite as susceptible, you know, to scattering and things in the way like you would in five gigahertz. So even, you know, in other countries, um, or really remote areas, you'll see 2.4 still used sometimes.
0: Wow.
3: that That's, uh, that's great to hear that 2.4 isn't dead just yet. Yeah.
2: I mean, it's not like, you know, it's certainly not a hot thing, but it's definitely not dead. If that, if that solidifies it for you. <laughs>
0: This is the sponsored part of the podcast. We were talking about the thing, whatever that was, and now we're going to talk about this other thing from our sponsor, and eh, 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 no need to press skip. It is not going to take me long to help you understand what Interoptic is all about. Interoptic makes high-quality optics for your network gear, and they sell them to you far cheaper than the network vendors are going to sell them to you. That's it. That's the main thing you should know about interoptic. So now is the part where I deal with your objections about buying a non-OEM optic. Cool, I can do that. It is actually easy. Two objections we're gonna deal with. Objection one, my networking vendor won't support my switch unless it has their optics in it. You might say, understood, I've been there. Not a problem with interoptic. They are very familiar with this problem and they manufacture their optics to match or exceed the performance and quality of OEM optics. An optic from interoptic is going to behave the same in your network device as the OEM optic. Interoptic devices are 100% compatible with Cisco, Juniper, Extreme, Arista, and other switches. Second objection You might say, I have had bad luck with off brand optics, the quality's junk, so it's not worth the risk and the headache. Okay, I know why you might say that, but again, Interoptic is not a off-brand optic. They didn't fall off a truck somewhere. Now they're being sold to you on eBay from username optics for cheap. Instead, Interoptic physically tests every single transceiver. And most other companies, they do batch testing only. In other words, these guys are a reputable vendor. Interoptic's business model is to sell you an outstanding optic for far less than the OEM optic. And they can do it by not marking up the price of the optics to the crazy amount that OEMs do while still making money okay so hopefully i have dealt with your biggest objections so this is the part where i tell you what to do next and that is visit interoptic.com packet hyphen pushers they've got a podcast plus a full written transcript of that podcast that's an interview that we did with the interoptic team a while back and we get into some of the nitty-gritty detail about optics and how they work and what's going on with them they're actually very complicated little devices again that's interoptic.com packet hyphen pushers and if you do decide to ring them up. Let them know that you heard about them on our show. And now is the final part, the part you've been waiting for, the part where I shut up about the sponsored bid and go back to us talking about the thing, whatever that was. What about mesh technologies then? Uh,
3: you know, I'd imagine a, a, a WISP has to be some sort of mesh, right? Well,
2: yes and no. Mesh technologies, the only mesh technology that is really used for transport is Facebook Teregraph. Like that is really the only technology that is out there that we would use for transport between towers because it was really designed for that. The other meshing technologies are really more in the Wi-Fi world. So you'll see them very commonly used. What, what you'll find a lot of WISPs will deliver is, let's say you have a city that does Doesn't have great connectivity and they want to blanket it with Wi Fi, like in a downtown area. Uh, Well, yeah, New York's. I've done some wireless in New York. New York's a fun RF environment. It's like probably one of the worst environments you could do on the planet. Or London or some other massively populated city, but you can do it. I, I have seen people do that. So, if you're in a but let's, I'll give you a good example. If you were to take like, um, I do this in like like resort towns, people, people, towns that people go to on vacation, they may have a small downtown with gift shops and restaurants and shopping, but it may be in the middle of nowhere. So, they may not have great connectivity, but people want to go there and shop and stay there. So, oftentimes, you'll find WISPs will deliver bandwidth via point to point shot to a building in the town, and then they'll use a mesh. A conventional outdoor mesh wireless solution to blanket that town with access, um, or or some apartments or flats or um, or you know college dorms, like anywhere that you have multi dwelling or a lot of people together, mesh solutions uh, often get used a lot, and then we'll deliver it with fiber or some point to point RF shot. But Facebook. TerraGraph, which I if I memory serves, it uses 60 gigahertz for the meshing technology, is the only solution where we actually use it like it is a transport role. Um, there is a there are a couple vendors out there that have tried this and they've they've had some some varied success, but it's multipathing when you're dealing with transport across larger distances is a very hard problem to solve. As far as far as Congestion on that and, and the frequencies that you use for meshing. Um, some people use five gigahertz. Some people use 60 gigahertz and, and it, it becomes a complicated thing. It's doable, but there's some complexities in, in traffic engineering and traffic management, which is a challenge for all WISPs. Because mm-hmm. if you think about it, think about the world we work in in data center and enterprise speeds are all fixed. 10 gig is 10 gig. One gig is one gig. 100 gig is 100 gig. And that's what it is. So you're routing. Architectures that go on top of those um, can be pretty, you know, pretty predictive and and reliable in the way that you manage your traffic. But if a link that you have that is a gig physical or ten gig physical suddenly drops to you know six hundred and thirty five meg and then goes back up five minutes later to seven hundred and eighty five meg, then you have a very elastic problem on your hands of how to manage that bandwidth. And so that creates even in point to point topologies of point to point RF links, that's a challenge. In meshing, it can be even more of a challenge of how to manage that.
3: I would ask how do you manage that in a mesh but I feel like the answer is going to be
2: well <laughs> I'm going to drag something out of the graveyard that Greg is going to love. I actually saw somebody try to solve it with trill. Um somebody actually used <laughs> wow. trill to try to solve to try to solve the mesh and actually it worked. It worked pretty well, but it it, would, it, it definitely had some challenges.
1: It would it, and it probably related to implementation, not the actual protocol itself. Yeah, there
2: were mm. there were some behaviors that wireless ISPs wanted to see on it mm. that yeah. were not easy to implement. But the the, the core concept was actually pretty sound in it. It was a uh, it was <laughs> yeah. a pretty neat concept. To the mistake see that they done.
1: probably made was to use Trill instead of SPB. If they had used SPB, it would have worked fine.
2: You know, and that's a great point. I, I actually I know that company. I may go back to them with SPB now and see if they can go throw that on the on the in the dev board.
1: Yeah. Because SPB was almost perfect for exactly this environment. For sure. Could you clarify SPB? Shortest path bridging. Yeah, that's right. Which was a uh, Ethernet over Ethernet overlay yeah. protocol. I
2: think Extreme is heavy in that, aren't they? Or were one of the developers in the RFC?
1: Yeah. Well, not uh, the Extreme was the company that ended up with the company that was heavily pushing away. Uh, that's right a, it
2: wasn't a via thing i do yeah i do remember thing. that now and yep. it goes
1: back further uh but what happened was um when they came to developing an ethernet over ethernet protocol the igf went off and, and came up with trill and because the ieee dithered and took so long in the 802 group the trill came out first and cisco went like we want a product to sell now everybody wants ethernet you know this ability to do overlays so they can scale up the data center and at that point in time, Cisco didn't want to do IP overlays. They wanted to do Ethernet overlays. Um, so you talk about – today we talk about things like ACI and EVPN. Cisco was very anti that back in the day. They did not yeah, want – It was all Fabric Path. It was all Fabric Path, yep. and they were very anti this EVPN, VXLAN type stuff. They thought that was the work of the devil and that shouldn't happen because they were going to be forced to change all of the ASICs in their switches, and they didn't want to. And so they started to head down the SPB trail path – Trill came out first, Cisco got onto it, and that was the end of SPB because the IEEE did it. But it would be almost perfect for use in a WISP at almost unlimited scale because you know that this is deviating a little bit, but SPB was used in the Olympics to handle hundreds of thousands of end-user points securely at the Ethernet level without, and it worked perfectly. And it was doing multicast as well, IP multicast in the same thing. Wow, And
2: that doesn't surprise me because that's unequal cost multipath is the single largest, biggest challenge for a wireless provider to solve because you have all these available ways to get there. And if you use, um, you know, traditional L2 and L3 technologies, you're in kind of an active standby role and you have Mm -hmm. unused bandwidth and wireless bandwidth is very, it's very precious. You don't have Mm -hmm. a lot of it and you need to use as much of it as you possibly can.
1: Yeah. And, you know, now we use LISP. And Lisp yeah. uses the – now, it can do multi-homing and multi and from multi-homing, multi pathing effectively, yeah. but it requires all of these ETRs and ITRs and R-lock servers and proxy mapping servers and all this overhead, whereas SPB was relatively efficient, did it all in the network without any – anyway, lost opportunities. The yeah. IEEE just really blew it, really.
2: And, and that was really the that was the idea behind the mesh transport that they put mm. out. Is we're going to build this L2 fabric that is going to kind of understand the available paths and capacity, and you can just dump VLANs in and out, and and put whatever you want over it to build your mm. you'll build your transport network. So I think we it may not be totally dead. We may see some more meshing technologies with Facebook Telegraph um, in there. But I would say to to in a roundabout way to answer your question, Corey, the most common type of transport that you're going to see um, to connect towers and points in a WISP is going to be a combination of um, fiber least l2 dark fiber and um and point to point wireless
3: so there's two protocols that i have to bring up uh you guys started talking about uh the layer two protocol uh what about batman you know, I don't think I've ever touched batman 802.11s uh, any familiarity with that? Yeah, I I'm vaguely
2: familiar with 802.11s, but again, I think these are standards that were really built more for Wi-Fi versus like fixed fixed broadband outdoors and like that's the the biggest thing you have to look for when you look at the standards is was the wireless designed to be deployed outdoors at distance for transport or is it designed to be a, a last mile type of technology? And so if you look at mesh as it relates to transport and not last mile delivery into a town or a building or whatever, there there are very specific things you have to do, which is why LTE is built the way it is. LTE Hmm. doesn't use ethernet at layer two. It uses a very, very specific type of L2 that was designed and built to transport and adapt to all of the weird things that happen as it passes through materials and outdoors. And so that's what you really have to look at when you're looking at any wireless Hmm. technology is what was it designed for indoors or outdoors?
1: What we've seen, I think more generally is that mesh protocols always fail. In implementation, they look really good through the standards process and everybody agrees. But the challenge is, of course, is solving hotspots in the mesh architecture. So if you get a link, the mesh will pick a path and it will attempt to do traffic loading in some cases. But you can't do traffic loading in a network which is self-autonomous because you can't get enough data into the network protocols to actually detect that this path is 100 megs, but it's running at 90 90 megs of capacity. So therefore start load shedding off to this path because you get flaps. So the mesh protocols always end up setting up a mesh. I've worked with half a dozen mesh protocols over the years, right? And they always end up establishing a good mesh, but they always fall down when that link over there is overloaded and then something stops working. And there's no way of knowing that you know, if you've got an autonomous protocol, you can't tell that that link there is overloaded and therefore packets are being dropped. And you're looking at the whole network going, there's nothing red here except for that one link. And you're going like, yes, and all the people behind and, that link.
2: Yeah. And you're 100% right, Greg. And that's, that's the single biggest challenge that we have. And so if you look at – I sent you guys an example of a real-world WISP topology of what that kind of looks like. And if you notice, most of them end up being a partial mesh of yeah. point-to-point links. And so to solve the two technologies we're using right now to try to solve that, one is segment routing. Segment routing is actually getting a lot of traction in the wireless space because you can source route on it. It's a lightweight, you know, control plane protocol for routing and label switching, and it allows you to kind of make some decisions that would otherwise be a lot harder to make in the way you want to choose paths. And
3: Do you run that um, over IPv4 or IPv6?
2: We do both. Normally, normally in the control plane, we'll typically put most things over IPv4, but we'll build dual stack for IPv6. Most of the networks I build nowadays, I I design them for v4 and. I mean, we're at the point where, you know, from an ISP standpoint, if you're not putting out IPv4 and IPv6, you're way, way behind the curve. Um, you know, you, it, you know, whether or not you have customers that are using it, especially if you're managing bandwidth for the customer by putting out a managed access point, you know, or a little CPE in their house, um, if you enable IPv6, you know, you're going to see like thirty or forty percent to all the major, you know web scale content distributors go onto v6 like right away you know, google facebook all netflix all those things are, are going to go into v6 right away so almost all the designs that that i build these days are all dual stack
3: and are they a uh, dual stack carrier grade NAT or are they dual stack uh you know you get two ip addresses
2: more and more we're using carrier grade nat for the v4 side because it, it with the exception of business handoff if you if you have the um, you know, if you have the V6 infrastructure, you know you'll look at the people that really in a residential. I'll talk about the residential and then the business side. In the residential side, the people that only really care about it are there's a few small businesses that may care about getting V4 public. Um, and then in the residential side, it's usually the gamers that are that are like all hot because they want it, and they would rather have V6 anyway. So we'll usually put V4 through CGNAT just the way a, like an LTE carrier, a mobile carrier would. Um, more and more, and then we'll put V6 public out, do like a slash fifty six um, through V6 prefix L. Out to a to a home or a small business and a slash forty eight to a larger entity, and then if you have customers that really need you know really need V four, then what it will do a lot of times to make V four allocation more efficient is we'll use an L two overlay technology like VPLS to build v4 into aggregated subnets back to a data center. So rather than picking them apart and subnetting them down where they become inefficient, um, we'll just build VPLS segments. And then that way, if you need a customer to pull a single IP, you can build them as a slash 24 or a 22 or whatever you want as the pool, and then just drop that tag into a VPLS transport segment to be more efficient on your v4 allocation for people that need uh, a direct public IP.
3: That's pretty intense. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's that's the uh,
2: over overlay overlays MPLS BGP and and all of that is is pretty much the daily world of you know of ISP networking. I often joke because I've been an enterprise engineer that you know we kind of spend all our time in L one through L three, and then when I jumped over into enterprise for a little while, I discovered that there was this whole world of you know L four and applications and everything that we had to concern ourselves with. But in the ISP space,
3: it's all about routing and switching. So so what about layer one? Um, do you guys ever use drones?
2: Yeah, actually, it's funny you bring that up. That's becoming more and more of a a thing in the the ISP space to do a number of different things. Um, Again, I'm going to speak of the US. This is being done globally, but I'm going to speak of the US because I'm the most familiar with it. Uh, The FAA actually has a special certification for commercial drone pilots that can be used for this application. So there's a number of things that they will do with that. Uh, You can actually attach a wireless access point to a drone, do a site survey if you want to. There are people doing that. Uh, there are people that will, um, if they want to audit the tower, like let's say they want to audit the state of the equipment on the tower, they'll get the drone in on the tower and fly around it just to see, you know, do, I, do my cables look good? Does my, does, my, does my alignment look good? They'll look at, you know, a visual inspection and audit of the equipment. Um, and even going beyond just the wireless space, like even in the service provider space, because there's so much area to cover, we're um, even seeing some wireline service providers will use drones to go out and do, you know, look at, you know, different things and just the state of things rather than sending somebody out there, um, you know, if they're based out of a central office and they could send a drone out, you know, a ways away. So yes, drones are definitely being used more and more. I wouldn't say it's the our primary method yet, but it's gaining popularity because drones... Uh, you know, are so inexpensive to to build and carry a light workload now.
3: I'd I'd love to see one day if uh, I order my service from my ISP and then an hour later I see a drone flying down the road. Then
2: <laughs> that that's my it just internet. delivers your your CPE device to you via drone. Yeah, well, yeah why not,
1: right? Yeah, sure. <laughs> It's interesting about CPE devices because they're now talking about a universal CPE, so literally a box that can do anything, and you can either connect it to cable or DSL or wireless, and all you do is load a piece of software onto it according to what your telco recommends. Um, And I think that's something that's really got legs because... um, this idea of having, you know, every different company has a different box and it's proprietary and it has this feature and that feature, It'd be a lot simpler if the same box was everywhere. A bit like telephones in the old days. All telephones were fun.
2: Yeah, no, I think that's a that would that would be a great thing to see because you're right. We do have so many different flavors and vendors, uh, you know, choices of things to do that it's a uh, um, you know, that's a conversation I have with ISPs every day. It's where what what CPE do I put for residential and small business? What do I use for handoff for enterprise or carrier to carrier? It's it's something right. that we. You know, deal with all day long. So, having a more flexible box that's, yeah. you know, not platform specific, I, would, to me, would be a great thing in the industry.
1: Yeah, and the idea would be is that you go and buy one from whomever and then just put your favorite software on it. And then yeah. it's I was like you
2: cable to... modems were like that in the U.S. Yeah, for a while. Like, like you could Air buy Force. a cable modem from Best Buy and register it with a number of different providers. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It it lost turned out of favor because the, uh, the manufacturers wanted to lock in deals with the telco to buy their box. Sure. And, you know, they wanted to sell millions. They didn't want to sell them via Best Buy and all that sort of stuff. So it fell out of favor um, when companies like Cisco said, you have to use our... Cable box on the end of our cable head ends, you know, our DCMTS and all that. So it became a really popular way. And then Comcast realized they could actually invoice people 20 bucks a month for the motor, <laughs> you know, or 10 bucks a And it became like a straight up way to gouge customers all around. So, not that I think that ISPs are all nasty people, you know, nasty organizations, shall we say, but uh, they are.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so i'll give you the counterpoint to that greg because you're you're right that is definitely that's definitely a yeah. profit center for some the biggest reason as a designer i like having a managed cpe out there is it reduces our truck rolls and our overhead because mm-hmm. so many people call in and complain about you know the very most common complaint coming to an isp whether it's a wireless isp or any other isp is you know your service sucks i'm not getting my speed and all the meanwhile there are six macbooks and an ipads on the kitchen table that are like chewing through 200 meg of apple updates you know that nobody knows about so they'll do a speed test get 10 meg, not realize the devices are chewing up all this you know, data in the background. And so one of the things that's helpful for the ISPs to have the managed CPE is just the visibility to say, you know, here's how you're using your link, you are getting your speeds, and it reduces their cost in truck rolls. So from the other side of the fence, that's one thing we like about having the managed CPEs is it does make it easier and less costly to ensure that you're getting what you're supposed to be getting.
3: Okay, so how can I, a normal engineer, uh, use my skills... To help municipalities or other places get internet, especially for, you know, people who are trying to do some tele-education through the pandemic, you know, is there something that, you know, some regular network engineer can do to help?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, if you want to look at starting a WISP yourself, probably one of the first things uh, um, to do is... Go look at you know, go look at the designs and the and the the information that's out there about, you know, how to build a wisp. There's probably a number of resources that are out there that will give you an overview of how to do a kind of a one-man startup Wisp. Probably one of the most common things to do is to, if you want to, let's say you have a uh, municipality, a town that you you live in that is not well connected, um, that you want to have coverage in. What I see a lot of people will do is approach the town and say, you know, I know that you know the township, the fire department, the police department, the city services don't have the greatest internet access because of where we are. You know, if I you know if I commit to to bringing this in, you know, can we? You know, give you a you know, help, give you a service, and they may comp the service or do a reduced fee service um, to some other partner, and it may be the township, it may be some other entity. But a lot of people will get started that way, and then maybe trade access on the city's water towers or radio towers, and that's the way a lot of people will get started. And then they'll typically move to building their own towers and putting things up. But that's the first place to start is where can you get internet from? That's really the first decision before you get in the wireless side of it. You've got to figure out is where is it economical to get an internet circuit that is most importantly legal to resell. You know, there's a lot of people that are gonna re, you know, just buy a home connection and resell it. And that works for a while. It's not technically, you know, compliant. It's out of, you know, it's not in the terms of use to resell a home, you know, internet connection. And eventually they'll kind of figure out based on the bandwidth patterns um, that you're using it to distribute it to somebody else. So your ISP may or may not get upset with you. But there's plenty of ways to actually get a circuit that's legit to resell from A number of carriers. And what you know, the biggest thing you've got to do is go figure out where that is in an underserved area. And then sometimes you may have to build wireless to go meet it. A lot of times, the closest and most economical circuit is maybe a few miles outside of town. So we'll, you know, hop across a few towers to a fiber meet me point and use RF point to point backhauls to bring that back. And that may save thousands of dollars a month versus bringing it directly into the town is going out to a meet me point like that. So that's one of the first things to do is figure out. Where you want to put it? Who needs it? You know what the bandwidth needs are. You know, really, just plain old, you know, just uh, business principles of does anybody really need this? Doing some, you know, doing some marketing research and say, you know, would you be interested in this? I see a lot of ISPs will build a site, you know, that says, you know, access coming in Q4 of 2020 and sign up if you're interested. And so that's a real quick and easy way to gauge. You know, is anybody actually care about this? Um, There's there's an adage in our industry is if you build it, they will come, which is not always true. If you build it, they will not always come. Not every area is just (laughs) going to jump off of their other provider. Um, You know, everybody thinks in the U.S. we hate on Comcast and we hate on Verizon, and you know, I'm sure in the UK you guys hate on British Telecom and whoever. But you know, there is this idea that everybody's just going to abandon you know their incumbent because you show up is not entirely true. So market research will go a long way before you get in the technical bits, and then once you get down that road, you can start figuring. That the old cost. story
1: about the, the bird in the pile of poop. He's warm and he's happy. <laughs> <You know? laughs> That's exactly <laughs> it. <laughs> and, the, and the cat comes along and, and catches a bird and, and eats him. And the answer is, of course, if you're warm and happy in a pile of poop, you should shut your mouth and enjoy it.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's exactly like that. Yeah. Um and, and so I think that the um I, I think that when you're starting an ISP figuring out who needs your, figuring out who needs your service and then solving the technical bits of how you're going to deliver it and the economics of it is the next thing that you've got to look at. And that's mm. probably the biggest thing I see when most people are starting a WISP. It's all about what radio do I use? Do I do this? And the thing is you first have to solve the business case and the, and the IS, the transport of the internet in, and then you can get into the technical bits of how am I going to deliver this wirelessly and what's the best way to do that.
0: Pausing the show for a moment to talk about virtual events. I know, I know, right? But this one genuinely grabbed my interest when our sponsor brought it up. ThousandEyes, just acquired by Cisco, is hosting the State of the Internet on July 16th, 2020. And for the past couple of years, they've done an event called Cloud State, where they've revealed their research on how the big public cloud providers stack up from a network performance and connectivity perspective. And we've had them on the Heavy Networking Podcast to talk about the interesting bits from that report. The State of the Internet 2020 is an inaugural event. They're going to be launching new research on internet performance. Because Thousand Eyes, they measure network performance, right? Well, the Internet Performance Research is a measurement-based study of the availability and performance of the internet, plus key app delivery networks, like public cloud and CDNs and DNS providers, those sorts of networks. The report will chart performance over time, focusing this year on the impact of COVID-19 to the global networks that we all use. And the speakers. The speakers are the real deal and why I registered for this event myself. Jeff Huston from APNIC, Roger Barranco from Akamai, David Belson of the Internet Society, and several others are on the agenda. And this is an agenda that is not that long. The State of the Internet 2020 is a half-day exchange of ideas and data among experts and leaders in Internet and application delivery. They are going to cover the health and future of the internet, and since more and more of us are using the internet as critical infrastructure, this isn't just a throwaway discussion. As I said, I have registered myself, and if you'd like to tune in too, head over to thousandeyes.com stateoftheinternet2020 with hyphens in between each of the words and save your spot for July 16th or register to get the on-demand recording if you won't be able to make it live. ThousandEyes.com slash state of the internet 2020 with hyphens in between each word. And now back to the podcast.
3: Okay, so, so let's say uh, somebody accomplishes that. How do you manage this? I mean, do you have tools that you use?
2: It, it's all manual. We log into every piece of equipment manually. There's no automation. No, actually, I do come across a few networks like that. But luckily, oh man, you just scared um, the <laughs> scared, scared the heck out of me. Yeah, no, sorry, a little shock factor there. There's a few networks I come across like that. Luckily, there are some tools that you can use. Some of them are common tools that we use in mainstream network engineering um, orchestration tools like uh, like Ansible or you know or some scripting. You're finding more and more. Um, there's some vendor tools for the management of radios. Most of the the vendors that make radios will. Give you some management tools to provision them. Um, unfortunately, that's still very vendor specific. There, there's a few things you can do with something like Ansible or some other you know automation mm-hmm. orchestration solutions. Um, but the problem is the way radios are built. They're usually it's going to be some proprietary form of Linux you know system on a chip where they're bridging an Ethernet port out to an RF stream, and so you know if you basically just got a layer two device. At its core, and then there's some configuration that's going to be, you know, probably in some kind of a text file, a flat text file that provisions that radio. So it's not always easy to like get at that, which is why they'll they'll have a vendor tool. So mm. that's something that getting things aligned to like Yang and NetConf and all of that is kind of starting to happen in the wireless space, but we're not not quite there yet. So you'll use a vendor tool to manage the radios. Um, then you'll use traditional monitoring systems to kind of look at the state of the network, like we do, you know, SNMP, um, ICMP. Checks, things like that. Data telemetry is kind of starting to become a thing in some wireless networks. There's a few platforms that do offer us some data uh, telemetry, specifically um, in the QoE space, which is. QoE is something... Um, I'll go ahead and explain it because I don't know if a lot of people know what it is outside of the ISP world. It stands for Quality of Experience. And what it normally is, it's an intelligent L7 shaping box that you normally will put into a core network or an aggregation network that is not only going to look at shaping by you know the, the IP source and destination or the VLAN that you're in, but it's also going to concern itself with L7 things like... Um, you know how much do I want to allow somebody to go to Microsoft or Apple like if there's congestion you know I maybe don't want to let them use all 100% of the link to go to Microsoft and Apple for updates and reserve some of that for uh, you know for just regular internet browsing or streaming media so it tries to just kind of intelligently adapt to the load to each subscriber and manage the services as best it can so that you don't have one big elephant flow trash the service experience for a customer mm. and so um, you know a lot of times we'll use that to, to kind of manage the experience across the entire isp which is what wireline isps do as well
1: it's the time on automation problem it's still also custom and this is where it is like right and so if you want to write some automation it, it, you end up having to entirely customize it for the specific because you've got some wireless you've got some fixed yep. you've got this antenna you've got that antenna this means this this and the engineer has so you might as well write it yourself I'm much more hopeful that in time we'll get these orchestration tools or intent-based tools that will be much more like they'll have subroutines in them that do a lot of that for you. And you can just say, like, check that wireless or check that wireless, you know, or if right. this string of, you know.
2: Abstract the intent from the actual configuration required to deliver well,
1: it. Somebody's still going to have to string together some stuff. It's never going to be yeah. – I don't want to paint a picture of, you know just gets them intended. Whoa, the quarry angels will no, be No, but I mean, RF is,
2: RF is RF. is Signal to yeah, noise ratio right. is a value that's in all radios and mm-hmm. things like that. You know, I, I even if I have 10 different vendor radios, I want to be able to look at that, you know, in a, a a neutral way that's not a vendor platform.
3: A single pane of glass, you mean?
2: Uh, oh, man, I'm not a spog. We, yeah, we, we, <laughs> we that's usually a, uh, usually a four-letter word. But yes, as close to that as you can get. You'll never get there. But, you know, the more you can centralize it, the better off you are
1: it's it's a dream right and it is but what yeah. you'll end up with i think i think the way the market is heading these days is the sort of, the idea is a a modular uh, an intent based system consists of a bunch of known things it doesn't really matter what network you're in it always ends up looking the same it's all ip packets and ethernet switches and all that sort of stuff and so a lot of the stuff that you we think about as unique is actually just the way we put it together you know this 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 and at some point we're going to get I think, smart enough to say that's a known subsystem, that's a known... And today we define the subsystem as an SFP on an interface or a link or a switch. In reality, it should be switch, wireless, wireless switch, you know, blah, blah, blah. That's the subsystem, not this, you know... Tightly integrated. I've got to invent everything here. Don't you know? This is really pointless. And, and you're right, Greg.
2: If you look at the telecom infrastructure project, it's I can't remember the exact domain, but uh, yeah. that Tip, uh, that actually is trying to align some common standards to the things that you're talking about in every yeah. area of core aggregation and last mile. You know, whether it's wireless or wired or whatever, they're actually trying to do exactly that and and come up with a common you know, framework that is not vendor-specific in the way we deliver that. So I think, you know, all hmm. the ISPs see value in reducing their operating costs by not, you know, having 1,900 different ways to do this.
1: Yeah, and, it, and the problem is, of course, if you do an orchestra, if you do an automation solution and it's very specific to your network, whenever you change your network, yeah, the operational yep. cost is enormous. you got to redo exactly.
3: Automation. Yeah. So, yeah. So how do you find hardware support for certain protocols on your access points or your devices? Do you even run routing protocols on on any of these uh, wireless devices? I mean, in a WISP, what do you run?
2: Uh, it's all rip. It's all rip v two. Um, <laughs> no, we uh, <laughs> so, so, it so, as it again. should be the time as monitor, it should uh, be rip ng rip ng. It's all rip ng. No, yeah. we actually we use a lot of the same. We use a lot of the same protocols that you're going to use in, in in traditional networks. And there's a few that I've seen use that are more unconventional, like uh, like Babel um, is out there is a, a an RF focused routing protocol. But you know what you're typically going to find is that. A lot of service providers build a a model where they're going to use IBGP on top of some kind of an IGP um, to build an autonomous system. Because at the end of the day, as an ISP, you're representing a you know a publicly registered. Uh, autonomous system with one of the regional internet registries, and so you've got to kind of build that border at all different points, like any other ISP. You're going to have POPS that are going to do peering and transit, and so to get back to that, you're going to use BG, a combination of BGP and MPLS in most cases. Um, in the smaller networks and the startup networks, sometimes you'll see um, L2 bridging used until they get to a certain point, and that you know obviously has well-known limitations that things start blowing up if you have too much layer two, um, and then you get into routing like OSPF is very common progression. Um, and I will say, a lot of people that start these things are not network engineers. So you ask, you know. Corey specifically about how do I as a network engineer get into this? You know, you've got a huge advantage because you understand the OSI model and the layers and the routing and switching. You know, I've, there's people that have gotten into this that are bankers and farmers and people that like had to learn this on the fly because they had it as a business idea. So network engineers have a distinct advantage coming into this is they at least understand the challenges they're faced with and the tools that are in front of them to solve those challenges in, in layer two and layer three. So uh, you know those protocols and the things that we use, um, you know VLANs coming into a router to aggregate last mile and then. That Jumps on to uh, you know MPLS or you know MPLS OSPF BGP and all of that to ride back to a data center. Those are, look very much like what you would see in other networks. Where things get a little bit different is the traffic engineering because as we alluded to earlier, now the links are equal. So trying to manage where all that traffic goes uh, can definitely be a bit of a challenge. And as I mentioned earlier, we're using segment routing now to try to solve some of those problems and. Mm-hmm. Um, I was out of Google recently and last fall uh, with uh, um, Faucet, which is an open source SDN controller uh, for OpenFlow. And we're actually looking at OpenFlow uh, to mm. do some path decisions and getting information from the radios and feeding it into uh, OpenFlow. So that's, that's something that we're kind of experimenting yeah. with because it's so got that's some promise. Going down
1: that, uh, that's going down the direction of using OpenFlow for a small subset of traffic. And then using BGP for most other stuff.
2: Correct. Exactly. You use OpenFlow for you use OpenFlow on SDN controller to solve that really complex hard problem, and then dump it off to traditional routing transport where things become a little more normal.
1: Yeah, that's right. Because people just can't believe that OpenFlow actually works but it does. Uh, it
2: but, does. Yeah, I, you yeah. know, if it, nobody's ever looked at faucet, faucet is a great, like actual operational, ready to run controller. That isn't this just mess of code. You've got to tinker with it's, you know, you can run it out of the box. It's, uh, we really liked experimenting with it in the
3: wireless space. So, so how does uh, SRV help help you in doing the, the deployment or the management? How does it help?
2: Um, so se- the thing about segment routing is one of the things that we like about segment routing is if you look at traditional MPLS traffic engineering, you're you're kind of jumping over lab- traditional label distribution like LDP. You have RSVP um, that's kind of skipping over that and building its own you know LSP of whatever points that you want it to traverse. As a system administrator, the problem is that it's harder to take the source into account. So you know we all dread the the, the mention of policy based routing. But if you look at segment routing, what it really is, it's like somebody took policy-based routing and turn it into a protocol because you can take the source into account. So I'll give you a practical example of that. Let's say that you've got a very, very busy tower that exists somewhere deep into your WISP network and you've got a bunch of different ways out of it. And you have grown so much in that area that any one of your backhaul links over these microwave point-to-points is not itself big enough to carry all those customers back over one single link. So you may want to split those customers up into a series of groups to send them over different backhauls to get to the data center. And if you take the source of traffic into account you can say i'm going to take you know this slash 22 and it's going to go this path and this 22 and it's going to go this path and you actually have some options that doesn't create a mess you know of like pbr would yeah. um, that allow you to program that into the forwarding plane to kind of solve some of those problems
1: it's a lot easier with OpenFlow than to use segment routing but
2: a lot yeah, of- OpenFlow definitely <laughs> makes it a little more push-button once you do all the dev work for it, <laughs> and you right, have a nice, yeah.
1: pretty single pane of glass. There, I yeah. said it. Um, yeah, we have, a, <laughs> pane yeah, have a, pane, a pane of glass. Yeah, I have a pane of glass. Yeah, I like to think of it as like a stained glass window, you know? Yes. So
2: Yeah. <laughs> And it's stained where the network is down? Uh, is that what you're saying?
1: Yeah. I, I like to see uh, segment <laughs> routing as open flow avoidance. It's like the telco way of saying, I've got MPLS, I understand BGP. I want more of the stuff that I've already got because I'm too stupid to actually change. And so I'll get segment routing and it looks like MPLS. It smells like MPLS. And it's, you know, you know that joke about the Irish, the three Irishmen walking down the road. And he says, oh, I don't Jimmy, know that joke. You see, hey, Jimmy, that's <laughs> a turd. Is that a turd? Is that a dog turd? And Jimmy goes, I don't know. And he goes... Oh, it smells like one. You know, get, get, get,
3: Well, if it looks like it, one and smells like one, it, it,
1: and he says, it touches it. He says, it feels like one. He says, oh, it tastes like it. He says, all oh, right, say it's definitely a turd. You know, and so that's segment routing. It wants well, got to look like it. It's got to smell like it. You know,
2: <laughs> segment routing is a hot topic. So segment yeah. routing MPLS is a very conventional and pretty well proven technology. SRv6 and SRv6 Plus are a lot more contentious in the realm of the IETF because they yeah. have a lot of limitations and challenges. But I will say. One thing I do like about SRMPLS for segment routing is it prov- it's a much lighter weight protocol stack to deliver labels over than LDP and you know SPF or ISIS by themselves because it kind of yeah. collapses that into one. So yeah. from a from a simplicity standpoint, SRMPLS definitely does make things simpler to build you know the routing architecture.
1: The challenge that you've got is that the IETF hasn't been able to get Cisco and Juniper to converge on a version of segment routing, and they've got divergent approaches. And instead of selecting one or Coming to a yeah. compromise, they've validated both. So you have this massive set of incompatibilities in segment routing because neither of them will agree. And uh, for some companies, it's actually just easier to use OpenFlow, coming back to it, like because yeah. really all you're using segment routing for is a subset of paths. Remember we talked about the mesh networking and saying all of a sudden there's a hotspot and I need to steer around that because at some point in my network I need to exert a higher level of control than I normally do. <laughs> then MPLS or segment routing is a way to do that.
2: And not to not to go too far afield, but you're right about OpenFlow. And one thing I'll say is that OpenFlow in the realm of enterprise and data center was really hot a long time ago, and then it kind of tapered off. But mm. OpenFlow continued developing, and very very quietly, some of the largest telecoms on the planet started using OpenFlow solutions to help manage mm. their their vast complex infrastructures for things like uh, AT and T. Great example. They published very recently that they've turned over all of their MPLS services in their core in North America are now under SDN control. They no longer do any kind of provisioning or traffic engineering for their MPLS services in North America without using an OpenFlow controller to do it. And so it, it's easier to do when you have a big development team behind you and you have you know, all these you know, hundreds of coders. But but definitely, you know, hmm. OpenFlow is being used to solve some very large problems yes. that doesn't get an enormous amount of publicity, but it's there.
1: If you're using a collaboration engine, so if you're using a third-party uh, client like Broadsoft for call control, like yep. IP telephony. Yep. All of those call controller gateways are OpenFlow programmed. They literally use OpenFlow to do traffic rate routing in and out of the gateways and to divert traffic as it moves around the internet. It's in That's all like
2: the fourth of- time I've heard Broadsoft today. What's the deal? <laughs>
1: well, it's just the name that happens to be on the yeah, top of I my know, head. I know. Um, the reason that OpenFlow didn't take off for uh, is taking off for telco networks is they can do very coarse definitions of flows or very fine-grained and the challenge was that when open flow first started everybody imagined that you were going to define eight tuples source destination source ip destination ip source port destination and they thought they were going to have to define tens of thousands but the answer is if you just define it like a static route like a slash 16 and that's a flow well yeah that's just an open as an open flow rule it just it's about the coarseness or the granularity of that flow definition. And that's how and,
2: we started on the wireless side. It was very simplistic. We just basically did we, – we had some uh, some tools that we developed to analyze the radio capacity at any given time and then just use that to program the open flow forwarding plane with some very simplistic rules. It was not yeah. terribly complicated.
1: No. I want, I want to ask you a question about hardware as well because one of the challenges about WISP is they can't – often they're rural and there's only a limited audience or limited customer base you're ever going to draw upon. So they quite often lean into lower-cost hardware. And a lot of people say that lower-cost hardware is bad. I'm not convinced of that. Do you find that? What's your experience there?
2: I will. So there's a, there's a, that's actually a great question. And I would say oh, no, that there's a few different answers. No, you only ask great <laughs> questions. Um, but that, that piece right there, but getting into the idea, because I spend so much time mm-hmm. in open networking and, and white yep. box and commodity networking, this is something that I'm very passionate about. And you're right. If you build it the right way, if you understand the limitations and that's probably the biggest single biggest thing, you know, no one solution is going to be perfect for everything. But if you understand the limitations of the lower cost solutions. And I'll throw just a few names out here for people to look up. Uh, Microtik and Ubiquity are incredibly popular in the wireless uh, space for WISPs because they're very low-cost platforms. More importantly, they're low-power platforms. So one of the things you'll find is that in the WISP space, you sometimes have to run off solar and get off the grid. South Africa, great example. Last year, they had horrible grid problems. I mean, they had like a national almost collapse of the power infrastructure grid. And so the wireless ISPs... Down there, we're heavily moving to solar. And one of the things you'll find is that Cisco and Juniper don't really have anything that can come anywhere close to touching the power budget of some of the solutions like uh MicroTick or Ubiquity. I mean, you can run for days on a very small power budget with you know up to 10 gig of traffic on some of those solutions. So I find that when they are used um, you know, where their strengths lie, they can be very reliable and stable solutions. The problem is when you get a router that costs a hundred bucks that can do MPLS and BGP, um, people often find ways to get themselves into trouble, you know. And there's all kinds of you know bells and whistles that get turned on. And so I find the biggest problem with some of the reputations that the lower cost equipment manufacturers will get is often that people do try to do so many things in there, and they don't really take time to analyze what their strengths and weaknesses are and, and yeah. use them to their strengths.
1: Yeah, but you're also not getting a kitchen sink and a microwave. You're just getting a router. Or a yeah. switch. You get a you and, get,
2: if you can get a router for a hundred bucks. Why? Why would I spend ten thousand dollars on a router that will pass one gig when a router that will pass one gig that's a hundred dollars is is doing the same job with ninety five percent of the features I need?
1: But it might not have segment routing version 6 yeah might not have know, segment routing i'm not going to have
2: this mm. yeah insanely you know deep feature set that only you know a small fraction of the customers use like we find in you know cisco yeah. and juniper and yeah. all the corner cases but you're right and that's and so one of the things that we find some interesting topologies that we build to kind of work around those limitations because there are times when we have to build things that are very different than what they look like in larger carriers because it's not cost effective to say, well, yes, I could, I could get segment routing and all this really high end stuff in there, but I can't afford to spend $100,000 per point on the network to put a box in there. No, it's never going to happen.
1: I, don't, I have to buy an advanced, you know, platinum double gold uh license with diamond encrusted bracelets on the outside to get the feature that I want or whatever. Just charge the customer right.
3: twenty dollars a month in the service for that. Yeah, yeah, that's
1: right. It's exactly yeah. Twenty bucks a month, you'll you'll get it back in five hundred years. Yeah. Um, I, I, so I just I think that's important. And the other thing is that if you can get low cost equipment, you can also start self sparing. So you don't and especially Absolutely. in rural networks, right? If you've got a box and you're paying five thousand dollars for it, keeping three or four of them on the shelf, that's painful. If you're paying a hundred bucks a box, you just buy ten of them for spares and boom, your spare part you're already halfway to your spare parts.
2: That's exactly right. And I would say most of the wireless ISPs that I work with, very, very few of them are going to be, you know, have extended TAC contracts, maybe on the peering routers in the data center or some of the data center gear. But, you know, most of the WISPs are even the large ones typically are going to have commodity equipment, like you said, yeah. that they'll have stocks of spares in, or maybe they just run two, you know, and run a routing <laughs> protocol. And yeah. if it dies, then they go replace it the next morning and nobody's out of service. But you know, it's it's it dies. I mean, it's two, it's a hundred dollar router. I can put four of them out there versus yeah. I'm only gonna put one highly available chassis with, you know, 19 power supplies and fans and all that that costs <laughs> 150000 you know, yeah. and that's... We, we have had a mental shift in the way we design wireless networks hmm. because of that, because we are hmm. aligning things with a lower cost product in a lot of cases. And so the network design's change.
1: If you're a wisp and you're trying to, you've got a potential market—a town with a thousand people or ten thousand people, of which you're going to get ten percent. So you're going to have a thousand customers. You can't afford to be dropping a five thousand dollars switch and a, you know, blah blah blah, and radio antennas and blah, blah you know, whatever. It's oh, a different absolutely. game. You you know, you look, And you got
2: to look at the funding, too. Some of these are self-funded. Some of them are funded through grants. Some of them are yeah. funded through private equity. So some of them, the community the, gets into, into it. So the one thing you have to think about is, unlike uh, enterprise and data center networking, where we have budgets that we're always trying to fill so that we get more every year, you have one bucket of money a lot of times to build the, ma- the, the service area that you're trying to cover. And then your recurring revenue, or maybe a few future cash infusions, will fund that growth. And so you want to cover the largest service area that you can reasonably expect mm-hmm. to cover you for the lowest cost footprint. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and a lot of times it's, you know, people will come in with more expensive gear and they say, well, I want to do this because we want to build it right with these protocols and it's got to look like this. I say, look, if it's the difference between people getting online and getting internet and kids being able to access education, who cares if we're using OSPF or BGP or segment routing or... or if it's some- the difference between internet or none, I would rather have it not be mm-hmm. the most perfect design and, and have some semblance of internet there where there was none.
1: And And in theory... And it doesn't actually work out this way. But in theory, the lower-cost gear is going to be less reliable. That's not actually how it works. No, it doesn't. But if you need to make that trade-off, just say, like, this isn't a wireless ISP. This is not meant to be 5.9s. This is meant to be Uh, 99 or 95%. If you lose enough. it for a day or two, the world I'll, isn't going to end, you know? I'm
2: going to give you a very short story, Greg, to illustrate that yeah. point that I use with everybody. Um, I had in, in the enterprise space, I had a large large Fortune 500 that we were putting uh, mainstream vendor routers into that was probably a million dollars worth of big chassis routers to build their flagship data center. And the vendor was behind on their timeline. They were delayed by like 12 weeks. And they said, well, we can't get these in there. The data center had to go live. And this company was already using... I think they were using Microtik for like some wireless hotspots. And I said, well, guys, let's just get a couple of Microtik routers in the data center and light up these IP transit links and these links into your corporate MPLS. And you know, when the other ones get here, we'll put them in. And they said, well, you know, that's, is that going to work? And I said, well, it's going to work a lot better than the vaporware you have right now. You have nothing. So we put those in. And, and the funny thing is, we ended up running that flagship data center for a Fortune 500 company. I think they were like a $19 billion company on routers that cost $800 a piece, for like 2 years. And the only reason that we had to pull them out is because the mainstream vendor wouldn't actually take the money back. Because about a year in, somebody realized, hey, we're running the whole company on $4,000 worth of routers in this data center. Why do we need these $1 million mm. worth of routers? And the answer was, we really didn't. But they, they felt that they did. And mm. so I went back up and put the mainstream vendor routers in because they wouldn't give them a, a refund. But you know, I use that story because I have a lot like that to illustrate that. If you understand the gear, you understand what it's capable of and how to deploy it, it doesn't have to to be, you know, a major vendor logo on the outside of the box. There's ways to do it with other kit.
3: Yeah. Coming back to the OWRt thing, uh, it, it's uh, always very fun to poke some fun into some open source technologies and, and get a little bit of an understanding to, you know, be able to do that. They've got the OpenWisp, uh, which, you know, people can install in VMs and go ahead and test out.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's horses for courses here. You know, if you're building a Wisp and you get a one-off grant, to kickstart the business, you need to build as much of that network as possible so you've got customers coming in because that you might never get another grant. So you're That's better it. off going cheap and going as wide as possible because when that revenue is flowing in, you've then got – you get to make choices. Or when you
3: got 50 people who are like, well, we want this. You're like, well, we don't have the money to deploy access points to you guys. And yeah, I'd put the right.
2: money into the radios, to be honest, the radios yeah. make a big difference and I would put all the money into the radios that you possibly can, because there are tiers of quality in radios mm-hmm. and they do yeah. make probably more of a difference than the IP networking. So I'm going to put my money into radios and get inexpensive routing and switching to bring it all mm. back to a DC.
1: Yeah. Or, you know, into your internet pipe. Yeah. Literally. Yeah. The wherever it is, wherever pipe. the internet
2: lives. Yeah. I, it, Data center is a funny uh, word in my world because data center to me has been a traditional colo and, you know, Equinix or whatever. It has also been the uh, luggage closet of a Holiday Inn, like out in the American Southwest. That was their quote-unquote data center because that's where the fiber drop came into. is where they store the luggage. Mm. So in a WISP world, those terms can be very fluid.
1: All right, well, on that note, I think we might have come full circle and we're probably reaching the maximum time that we've got available. Thanks so much to Corey Steele and Kevin Myers for joining us today. You obviously heard that they've both got good ideas about how to go about it and hopefully you, in the, as, a, as a listener, have found something to uh, inspire you to jump out and start building an ISB. Uh, and as always, you can find more information about Kevin. We've got links in, uh, about him and Corey in the show notes. If you want to get in contact with them or follow them on Twitter, uh, do that. And as always, this has been Packet Pushers. If you've liked this, there's many more, hundreds, literally, of podcasts available for you to listen to. You can subscribe to our shows. And uh, if you could leave us a rating on uh, Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcatcher, that helps us so much because it uh, bumps us up the rankings and we can reach other people in the audiences. As always, you can follow us on the social medias, LinkedIn, if that's where where you like to hang out. Uh, and also on the Twitters, Um, and we also have a range of other services if you check out our blog at packetpushes.net. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.